Well, we're going to continue our study as we turn the corner last week into Genesis chapter 6. And last week we spent a little bit of time trying to just set the context for this opening identifier of the sons of God and, and really deal with some of the various views of, of who the sons of God are. Um, there's been a variety of, of views that have been put forward by um, theologians and teachers and people of just students of God's Word through the ages. Um, one, of those, one of those passages of Scripture where you don't have a whole lot of background to really draw from to know exactly uh, what was going on here, or who these um, players were. But we looked at uh, the, the major views on the sons of God. And, and for the purpose of our study, uh, though there, the, we can't be overly dogmatic that this is clearly exactly what, um, how, how we should see this passage, I do think it's, it has biblical support, as we talked about, um, where this sons of God um, identifier here is referring to um, fallen angels who had overtaken ungodly men and really become a, such a the, the society became fully demonically influenced and and controlled and so um, I think that without going into a lot of re- rehash of that um, there are other views that that would be plausible in the context of scripture as well for example I think the other view that is um, most contextually viable would be that the, the sons of God is referring to the, the, the line of Seth, the Sethites, if you will, who are corrupted um, as a result of their um, lusting after the daughters of men, and that led to uh, really a corruption of, of the marriage union, a corruption in polygamy, and just, and just marriage for lust and for the purpose of that they were attractive and they took as many wives as they wanted. So, nonetheless, the, the, the context of this section deals with the complete corruption of society. We know that for certain. And so, um, but the, for the purpose of, of our context, um, if you'll just indulge me by um, kind of adopting the view that I think is, is most um, compelling in, in, in terms of the text, and that is that there was a, such a strong demonic influence by the sons of God, namely angels that had overtaken men and, uh, and led to all, all manner of corruption that we'll talk about uh, in a little more detail in just a moment. So that's kind of our, our context as we step forward in this study um, and, and really look at the first eight verses of Genesis chapter 6. And really, the first eight verses, the way I kind of see this is it's kind of like a spiritual backstory for the flood narrative. You're really seeing sort of the, the background context for what is about to transpire, what, to, what is about to unfold as we see what takes place with Noah and his sons and what God does in, in interacting with Noah and giving him some specific commands and a specific mission uh, and part of his redemptive plan that deals with the flood and the ark and all those familiar and famous um, accoutrements of the flood narrative. So this really is kind of a spiritual backstory. Uh, to that that narrative as it begins to unfold that we'll look at in a little more detail today in the first eight verses. So let's read verses 1 to 8 of Genesis chapter 6 to kind of get the passage set in our minds, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. Verse 1 says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. 
The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, as I said, this, this passage really is a bit of a backstory um, to, to the flood narrative. And I'll, I'll kind of elaborate a little bit more on, on why I'm terming it that way in just a few minutes. But let's just kind of look at some of the characteristics of this section that, that's, that, that kind of fly off the page at us. The first thing that we've already sort of touched on in, in dealing with this the sort of this controversial passage or this controversial identifier of who are the sons of God and some of the various views is that you have this demonic dominance of society and, and really a, a dominance that is just pervasive, unmitigated. Um, you have this, this idea that all the natural boundaries have been just dissolved, have been obliterated. In fact, when we looked at the passages um, from Peter and Jude last week, Jude in particular talks about how the angels left their natural domain, their normal domain. Um, and so there's this idea, when you think about the context of, of how a society can become utterly corrupt, it stands to reason that natural boundaries of morality, of societal morality, become completely obliterated. Morality and code of morality becomes completely turned on its head and completely redefined. And so in this context, you see what would be a demonic influence of that that is, that is welcome, that is just completely overtaking uh, the culture. And it's interesting to note here that it, it really goes at the heart or the foundation of society because what you have taking place here is the corruption of marriage and the family. You have this complete uh, annihilation of what was form uh, in Genesis, and when God created the marriage union. One man, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave only to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's completely out the door in this regard. We saw glimpses of this, obviously, in the, uh, the poem of Lamech, where he is sort of bragging to his two wives. You have this introduction of polygamy, and he's bragging to his two, li- two wives about his treacherous revenge taken on a a young man for just wounding him, a non-mortal wound, uh, some kind of insult or some kind of possible physical wound of some kind, but nothing nothing life-threatening of any kind, and he takes vengeance by by murdering this man. But he's bragging about his his exploits in this regard to his his two wives. So you have this introduction of these elements of the perversion of, of marriage, but this really puts it more in, in bold relief for us because this demonic influence of the society is going at the very foundation of society, what really forms society, and that is marriage and home and family and the environment through which children are born and, and children are raised and grow up and develop 
views of life and relationship and how they're to live and what right and wrong is or if there's right and wrong. So this very core foundational institution of home and family is what is completely corrupted. And what you see here is this lust-driven perversion of marriage. Um, The passage there in verse 1 says that they, the sons of daughters saw that the the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. So there's this element of lusting after the physical appearance of a woman and taking that. The the implication here is is a lust-driven perversion of marriage. As opposed to the, the, the ideal, the created ideal of a partner, a suitable helper a partnership in marriage, a a companionship, a mutual, um, uh, compatible partnership for life together. This is is a complete perversion of that, and it's driven primarily and principally by physical elements of lust and attraction. That's That's the idea here. And of course, polygamy is assumed as well, taking as many as they wanted or whoever they chose. So, So you have this... Lust that's in not, it's not never satiated, so you have to have more and more and more, and, and so there's the idea of that on display here. And then you have this indication of multiplication, because it says at the very beginning that when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as many as they chose, and then it talks uh, again down in verse 4 about how they bore children to them. So the the... the multiplication mandate, if you will, was being carried out significantly. The earth was being populated with offspring, but the nature of this multiplication effect was merely multiplying the corruption of society time and time and time and time again through marriage and offspring. So there's the idea of this this influence. You have the natural boundaries dissolved, you have corruption at the very foundation of society in, in the marriage and the family. You also have here, you have human achievement and power and fame is idolized. You have these, the, this reference to these mighty men, these men of renown that were, that were known in the land. In fact, we talked about this last week about the reference of the Nephilim. And it's also referenced in Numbers and how that struck fear in the hearts of God's people who God had promised them this land and the spies came back and they were fearful of these mighty men. And in that case, it was fear. But in this case, these are men of renown and they're renowned for their might. They're renowned for their, their, their strength. Um, the indication or the implication there is that they are warrior types. Um, you see this um, alluded to down in verse 11. Um, it says that they were filled with violence. The description of, of the society then is that it was, is a, it was a culture filled with violence. So you have this, this idolization of power and fame and renown and human achievement. There's, there's an excessive hubris here that's this sort of dominating society. It's, it's, the, it's the classic love of the world that we see described in 1 John chapter 2. It's this lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life that's dominating the entire population, entire culture. And um, again, this, like I said, filled with violence is another characteristic that you see referenced in verse 11. 
The Dictionary of the Old Testament says that this is a reference to cold-blooded and unscrupulous infringement of the personal rights of others motivated by greed and hate and often making use of physical violence and brutality. So this was a culture of takers. You want something, you take it. You take it by force. It's a culture of the power, the powerful and the strong and the mighty rule and dominate and take what they want. And it's a culture that's dominated by the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and just being completely consumed by a worldly, demonic mindset. It's interesting, when you think about this, though, it's not as though this was a society or a culture that was uh, base in all respects. Because we do know, uh, hearkening back to our prior study, when we looked at, um, in Genesis chapter 4, the line of Cain, there was, there was elements of God's common grace on display. There was, there was presumably artistic endeavors and creative endeavors. There was an appreciation of beauty. There was uh, cities and achievement and design and metallurgy. And, uh, you know, there was still that, that societal accomplishment and the collective benefits associated with that taking place. And, in fact... We know from uh, Matthew chapter 24 that there was a complete lack of awareness of the debasement of the culture. They were completely oblivious to this. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39, this passage that talks about the coming of the Lord, it says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So you have this, this society that is not completely uh, devoid of any uh, elements of God's common grace on display. However, at the core, it was dominated by selfish, lustful, worldly, demonic influence of taking and of seizing and of gratification, of personal um, uh, lustful desires. That's kind of the, the, the imagery that we see here in this culture, complete dominance of that. You also have here a complete corruption of heart and mind. So it's not just about the outward actions of the society. The description here is just, doesn't just focus upon this corruption of marriage in that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and took them as many wives as they wanted or took, took as many as any that they chose, any of the wives that they chose. It's not just them taking what they want physically, but there's a corruption, a complete and utter corruption of heart and mind. You see this in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's a comprehensive corruption of heart and mind. In other words, when you have a society or a culture that becomes utterly and completely corrupt, it's not just that it's corrupt in its action. It's not just that it's corrupt in its moral code and the things that it says are right and the things that it says are wrong. It's corrupt in what it believes and what it thinks and what flows out of the heart, just like, just like anyone else. In other words, it's what flows out of the heart is what defiles us. What comes out is what defiles us. And so this principle was in bold relief, on full display, this complete corruption of heart and mind. When I, when I think about this, I don't know how this 
this kind of lands on you. But it's, it's hard not to think about our culture. You know, it's hard not to think about, well, how does this compare to what we're experiencing in our day and time? Or how might this compare to uh, what Paul was experiencing in his day and time when he was writing to, for example, the Corinthians or the, the, the redeemed in Ephesus who came out of a pagan sort of pantheistic sort of culture, um, you know, lots of, lots of corruption of worship and a lot of perversion in those cultures as well. But, it, but it's hard to not think about, you know, our own society and our own culture and the elements of our society and our culture that we sort of struggle with and we observe and we wonder, you know, what, what's going on here and, and what is God's view of these things and what does judgment look like? What does the wrath of God look like? In relation to that, I mean, it's it's not um, not a far stretch to say that that's a, a point of of question or concern. I, I think though, when you go to this place of of looking at the corruption of heart and mind, and you think about what's what was taking place then, and then you start looking at some of the indicators of what is taking place in our day and time in our culture, I just want to read some some statistics for you from a Barna study. Um, and really, the title of the study, I think, captures it, but it's, it's The End of Absolutes, America's New Moral Code. It starts off by saying, Christian morality is being ushered out of American societal structures and off the cultural mainstage, leaving a vacuum in its place. And the broader culture is attempting to fill the void. So if you think about our culture, I wouldn't say that our culture is completely debased and off the rails, I wouldn't say that there's massive demonic influence. I mean, there's, there's, plenty, of, there's plenty of people of faith in our, still in our society. There's still a, an element of moral code. There's still, and, and you'll see some of that as I read through some of these statistics. But there is this, there is this sense of transition, maybe as a way to look at it. There's, there's, a, there's this sense of some level of, transition in our culture and our society that is tied to belief. It's tied to philosophical dispositions, if you will, beliefs about things. And the way that this particular research um, survey kind of highlights th- this is, is, is that there is there's sort of an abandonment or, or, or a setting aside of social structures in our country that are tied to Christian morality, and it's basically left this vacuum so it's now being filled with other ideas and other things. It's kind of this idea of transition. He goes on to say, A majority of American adults across age group, ethnicity, gender, socioeconomic status, and political ideology express concern about the nation's moral condition. Eight out of ten. So that's why I say there's still a level of concern that's expressed that crosses all demographics. So it's not as though there's a complete abandonment of any concern whatsoever as to what's going on in society or there's no awareness of some of the ills and evils of society. There's concern that is measurable. However, it's not so that that doesn't that's not leading to any kind of renewal or revival or return to a Christian framework or a biblical worldview. It goes on to say, much less widespread, however, again, that, was, that first one was this concern about the, 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 um, the nation's moral condition, 8 out of 10, about 
That's widespread, but much less widespread, however, is consensus on morality itself. What is it based on? Where does it come from? How can someone know what to do when making moral decisions? According to a majority of American adults, 57%, knowing what is right or wrong is a matter of personal experience. So you can kind of see where this is going, right? It goes on. A sizable number of Americans see morality as a matter of cultural consensus. So, and, and that statistic is about two-thirds of all American adults, 65%, agree either strongly or somewhat that every, quote, every culture must determine what is acceptable morality for its people. So, you have this merging of personal experience as the determiner and cultural consensus as the determiner. Now, what we're seeing in the playing out of this is a lot of tension and strife and sort of warring over where we're going to land. You see what I'm saying? It's like, what, what does all this mean? And well, you think this, but I think this, and so we're going to kind of fight about it, argue about it, debate about it, ridicule each other about it, create websites and do social media posts about it. I mean, that's, that's kind of, there's this, there's this tension that is being manifest in our culture and in our society because there's this personal experience focus and this belief that cultural consensus should drive this. So there's this, there, it's almost like there's this massive cultural debate going on all the time. And it's manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. Political debates, social upheaval and unrest, riots, uh, philosophical debates on college campuses. It just, it's manifesting itself all the time and all over the place. Um, because there's this, this effort, if you will, or this battle to arrive at a cultural consensus for what is right and what is wrong. While most American adults agree that a culture plays some role in establishing moral norms, a majority also agrees that the Bible provides us with some absolute moral truths which are the same for all people in all situations. So it's a little confusing there, right? A little confusing. See how it's not one thing or another. So there's still this element of the Bible does have absolute moral truths. It's just that I don't know if that's truth for me personally, and I don't know if that's really what's good for the culture or the society at large. So there's not a consensus around that. There's, there's this conflict going on. And finally, two-thirds of American adults either believe moral truth is relative to circumstances or have not given it much thought. So just this idea of relativism as it relates to moral absolutes and moral truth. So when you think about our society and you start comparing that to what was going on in the days of Noah prior to the flood, it's almost as though we're in a pre-Noahic season where there are debates going on and there's contention contentiousness about really over morality, over the moral fabric of our American culture and our American society. That's kind of, I think, what this, this I, didn't, I didn't study all the, the fine detail of this research report. I kind of skimmed the surfaces like I just read to you. But I think that that's a fair indication, that's a fair assessment 
of some of what we're experiencing in our society. And obviously, I wouldn't be overly dogmatic about those things. I don't claim to be a, a social expert or or clairvoyant on these matters, but but I do think that there's some some truth to that. There's a vacuum in our culture, and where there is an unguarded heart, what is the risk? Where there is an open, a completely open mind, yeah, that, that, that's a virtue in our culture. You, you realize that, right? Having an open heart and an open mind is a virtue, but that's not a biblical position to hold on to. It doesn't mean that you're closed off to people, but that you're supposed to guard your hearts, right? And your minds are supposed to be transformed through renewal around the truth. So it's very fascinating to think about the implications of this survey of the pre-flood society and what was going on there and, and what we're experiencing in our day and time. I thought that was kind of interesting. Anybody have any comments or thoughts on, on that? Looking at the scripture, Noah, in spite of what he was surrounded by, it says he walked with the Lord. Mm-hmm. He must have had a special communion with God because he sure didn't have a church to go to. So how do you suppose the people treated him? Wasn't he a thorn in the flesh just as Christians are an annoyance to people today? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm certain that was the case. I'm surprised that he wasn't to the point of being killed even. You know, <coughs> excuse me, it makes me kind of wonder too, there, there's a sense in which, um, even, even in our day and time, it, it's not so much that Christians per se are, um, how do I put this and, and actually have some accuracy to it? I think that the greater push right now, as it relates to Christians, is to just marginalize them, to, to make Christianity and Christian belief and even Christians just sort of inconsequential. But we're called bigots and all kinds of things. There is that. I, I, I agree that there's still, there's still um, vitriol and, and assault and attack, and, and there's definitely even physical persecution around the world. So I'm not saying that that's not that's true. Yeah, but I think that in our, our, our culture, I think that more, maybe one of the more um, sinister strategies for that is to, like I said, marginalize just like, like it doesn't matter. So some of it is out-and-out assault. Some of it's very overt and aggressive. But I think that there's a more sinister approach that's more sort of a disdain. And just, Which is more effective for them because first that's right. I mean, historically, that is certainly the case. So, but it's interesting to think about these things. I think, in light of what we're studying, um, you kind of look ahead uh, and think of the rapture occurring, then society could be exactly what it is in Genesis, or very quickly. Yeah, I mean, you have, you have to wonder too. I mean, um, it, what's left to restrain? The thing I think that also is striking about our, our day and time and our culture is what we, I think what we are experiencing are rapid changes. Mm-hmm. It, it, in other words, the pace of change in mindset is really very, very aggressive and rapid over short periods of time. Um, where, and, and what I mean by that is I'm not, I'm not talking about just sort of the ebb and flow of trends in a, in a culture, you know, 
like bell-bottom pants and you know, I'm, not, I'm not talking about like the 70s style or the, you know whatever I'm talking about where in, in the main what used to be totally viewed as unacceptable and immoral is no long is not now just simply tolerated it's actually held up as virtuous so it's it's a complete upheaval uh, uh, of these various issues of morality and moral code that sort of establish guardrails and a framework for society. There's a scripture, I think it's in First Timothy, about that, where what is evil shall be called good and it will even be so. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have right here the Romans 1 passage, and I, I know that I've read this before, I know that we hear this a lot, but just listen to this and think about how this obviously would compare to the society in Noah's day, but also think about trends in any society, and in ours in particular. Yes. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Think about the Barna research, right? Suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. So there you have the perversion of society. That's right. Was God's creation, his general revelation, which made it evident to them that they were the other way. They they also they also suppressed what they knew because they did not want to face a judge. And what they knew was not from the word of God, but from God. from creation. That's right. That's right. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds. Oh, excuse me. Uh, I, I've already read that. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you have, in our society, you have all manner of creature worship. I mean, the entire sort of rabid environmentalist movement. I'm not talking about stewardship of the environment. I'm talking about rabid environmentalism is really just a worship of the creation in all various aspects. It is. It's an ideology and a religion. So so you have this exchange that takes place because everybody is a worshiper. Everybody is wired to worship. Um, for For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. So again, a breakdown of the natural barriers, the natural built-in barriers. Those just get completely obliterated. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. 
And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. So there you have the effect of the family, right? The offspring. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only did them, but they'd give hearty approval to those who practice them. So again, there's this exchange that takes place where it's no longer just um, hiding out in sin or having little clusters of, of belief that are oriented toward immoral action, but it's the complete upheaval of a moral code in a society where what once was looked at as immoral is now looked at as virtuous. Normal and virtuous, that's right. So this is kind of a a little snapshot of what you have going on here in the days of Noah. You have this demonic dominance of society that affected the actual outworking of life in the context of perversion of marriage and family and the multiplication effect of that, generation after generation, children being born and children being born into this environment and learning the ways of this culture time and time again, and that being reinforced and reinforced. And so you have this effect on the core foundations of society, and then you also have this complete corruption of heart and mind that was behind the action, that was motivating the action, that basically was a turn of thinking in reference to God and, a, and a, that exchange that we saw in Romans, thinking in reference to self, to what my passions dictate, to what I want and people become takers, and they become consumed with a worldview that justifies that, that approves that, that endorses that. But you also see in this passage, you don't just see a sort of a demonically dominated society. You also see God's gracious judgment being forecasted, if you will. And I say that intentionally, God's gracious judgment Every time we, we see God, I mean, you go back to, to Genesis chapter 3, there's grace in the curse. Same thing happens here. The first thing you see in verse 3 is the patience of God in his judgment. It says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So this is God saying, I am going to judge but there is a time span before that judgment is undertaken. Now, this, this just is a, a bit of a side note. I don't want to linger here too long. But there is um, a little element of interpretive controversy around this 120 years. Um, some would say that it's a contradiction because if you interpret this to mean that a man's days shall be 120 years, meaning that from this point forward... Man's only, you know, the maximum lifespan of man's going to be 120 years. Well, that gets obliterated because that, that's not what happens, right? That's not even what the text tells us in, in subsequent uh, um, references to people living much, much longer than that. Okay. The other, the other way to see this is that this is a, this is God saying, 
giving a time span from his determination of judgment. I mean, obviously he determined it in eternity, eternity past, but from the standpoint of the text and, and his revelation of his intention to judge in this way, um, he, he's giving sort of a time span, a window of time, which is not uncommon or uncharacteristic of God in giving time for people to repent. And so the, the conflict there is that if you use uh, sort of a chronological um, understanding when uh, you go back to Genesis chapter 5 when Noah had his three sons, it says he was 500 years old. And then you move ahead to when the flood came, he was 600 years old. That's not 120 years, right? That's 100 years. So you have this idea that you know it's either it's wrong on both counts. It's a it's a place to go to to say, see, the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible's not reliable, and on and on it goes. But in reality, this particular section, even in the context and, and sort of in the flow of the narrative, is not. It does not. It's not set up to be this this chronological view of the progression of the narrative. And we see an example of that in comparing Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where you have chronology as an emphasis, and then you have Genesis chapter 2, which is an expansion of a particular component of what came before. This particular section is sort of the spiritual backdrop, as I said, is sort of really God's perspective on what he saw, what was taking place in society prior to the flood. So it's not that, that 120 years in the context of the narrative is not bound to the prior 500-year-old Noah when he had his sons and then the 600 years age of Noah at the time of the flood. Does that make sense? In other words, if you want to, and I wouldn't say this dogmatically, but if you want to be technical about it, the text itself does not eliminate the possibility that, that God's commentary on what was taking place in society and his determination at that point to reveal his intention to judge was 20 years prior to the 500-year-old mark of the birth of Noah's sons as referenced in uh, chapter 5. Does that make sense? I don't think that that's, I mean, if you took that as just a figurative understanding of the reduction of man's age, I just think that there's, I think in the context, there's a better way to see it as God God making a determination of judgment, but it not being instantaneous and immediate, there being a time span between his intent to judge or his revelation of his his intent to judge and the actual execution of that judgment. Because what we know is that, what, what did Noah do during the time that he was building the ark? He was a preacher of righteousness. So, again, and we see this, for example, in Revelation. You see God continuing prior to ultimate judgment. He's continuing to use men to evangelize the lost in his patience. That's why I say, you see this as an example of God's patience. I mean, the, 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 the justification of his judgment was unquestioned at this point. Not only because he is a perfectly righteous judge in and of himself, but because the evidence of what you see described in the culture and the society and its utter rejection of him and its complete embracing of 
all things evil and wicked. So his justification of his judgment is already on full display, and yet he's patient in rendering that judgment. So, again, just trying to kind of clarify some of the stated contradictions that are often brought up there. But really, I think, either way you look at it, it is an indication of God's patience as well. It's an indication of his patience and his judgment. You also see in this text, you see the sorrow of God. So in other words, God does not reveal himself as robotic, as unfeeling or uncaring. And of course, we know this as we see God most vividly and accurately manifest in Christ himself and the compassion that Christ exhibited as being a servant of all and having compassion and healing people and loving people unconditionally and restoring people. Um, You see that character of God, but you see it here as well because it says in verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So God reveals himself as, as a God who cares deeply and is heartbroken, in a sense, over the sinful actions and the, and the rejection of him and his goodness and his grace that man manifests time and time again. Now, of course, you have um, people who would say that you know, God repented, so God changed his mind, and so um, that means that God is not omniscient. I mean, if he, if he, if he knew this, then why would he have to change his mind? And or some people might even build this into a full-blown sort of theological view uh, that God is not, um, that God does in fact change. He's not unchangeable, and His plans are kind of in in sync with man's decisions. And so even God is kind of waiting and reacting to, to things as they play out. Um, so. Right. Right. And when he said he repents, I don't believe he's doing it. No. I think what changes is his attitude. He has a different attitude towards a man who is in a state of sinning versus a man who is in a state of obedience. I like the way it's stated in, in, in this uh, quote. It says, God is not apathetic to the sin of man. He is not indifferent. In fact, Ezekiel said that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jeremiah wept the tears of God over the judgment to come. Jesus wept the tears of God over the judgment to come on Jerusalem and Israel. The Lord was sorry, it says. He was sorry. What does that mean? It's sadness. There's a reality to the sadness of God. He was sad, and he was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It's a very real thing. God can feel, and he, can, and he felt the disappointment of the horrors that occurred since he had made the glories of, the pure, of that pure, pristine Eden. So there's a real indication here, a real sort of revelation of, of the heart of God. But this is not speaking, it's, it's, it's anthropomorphic language is a good way to look at it. It's, it's giving human um, attributes to the manifestation of God's nature and character. And that happens all throughout Scripture, as we know. Okay, so, But God's judgments are eternal. His knowledge is omniscient, and it's not bound by time and space. And there's passage upon passage upon passage when you're really 
when you come to verses that are talking about God's eternal nature, His eternal character, His holiness, the attributes of God that are altogether other than us. They're called the incommunicable attributes of God, if you want to use a theological term. They're communicable attributes, in other words, attributes that we could also possess and share in common with God. And then there are incommunicable attributes, those that we do not share in common. And so, in the communicable attributes category, our sadness over the fallen sinful nature of unredeemed humanity should be a heartbreaking thing to us as it does break the heart of God. Even though it does not change God's standards and it does not affect his ultimate judgment. It's still, though, an indication of his tender, forgiving, compassionate heart toward man. That's right. Right. That's right. And every time we try to even, even when we're looking at passages of Scripture and trying to discuss them, it's still fraught with difficulty because we are trying to think of this in very human and very fallen human terms. So it does become a little bit murky um, when, you, when you look at it from that vantage point. But the fact of the matter is, is that God was sorrowful over this. It wasn't the kind of situation where God was on his high and lofty and holy throne and his perfect justice could have just said, I'm done with you people. Enough already. Even though that was part of his sentiment, for sure, there was sorrow there over the fallen depravity of man, of his creation. Yeah. Very disappointed and sorrowful. And then you have the justice of God. And again, the justice of God is also very evident. In verse 7 it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And you'll notice that this is going to be a comprehensive judgment. It's absolute. It's definitive. So even though there is sorrow over the fallen nature of man, his judgment is sure, it is certain, it is absolute, it is, it is not equivocating. And that gets into the holy and eternal justice of God. And then finally, and we'll just, won't say too much about this because this is really going to segue into a fuller look at Noah, but you see the grace of God here. I said it's God's gracious judgment. Well, in verse 8 it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord that Noah found the grace, grace was bestowed upon Noah, in other words. Noah was an object of the grace of God. And we'll look more fully at that next time we're together. Well, let's pray. It's 10.15.